Good morning. Before we begin, I just wanted to say I love our worship team. So thank you, Brandon and team. Yeah, give it up. If I was Jonathan, I would say, all right, bring them back up. Let's do the whole worship set again. But in case you didn't notice, I am not Jonathan. My name is Zach Rice. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at First Baptist Indy Atlantic. And today we're going to be in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, so if you could open your Bibles. Thus far, for the past few weeks, we've been studying signs and wonders that Jesus performs throughout the book of John. We started this series by studying Jesus turning water into wine. Then the following week, we studied Jesus healing the royal official son. And last week, where we left off, we studied Jesus healing the paralytic man at the pools of Bethesda. So that's where we left off. That's where we're picking up today. Uh, So if you could stand with me as we read from God's Word, book of John, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now, the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, Collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Father, I offer this broken vessel. I pray that you would use it to preach your word. Amen. You may be seated. This may be my favorite sign in all of Scripture. I was really excited that I got to preach about this sign because it highlights something about Jesus that I have always loved. And that is that he was a food guy. He loved food. Do we have any foodies here? Any big eaters? Is anyone a big quantity over quality person? Like, you don't care what it is. You just want to eat a lot of it. Myself too, yes. I'm glad I'm not alone. And I I get the impression that Jesus was like that too. He didn't care who it was from or what it was. He just wanted a lot, right? You want to know the first thing Jesus asks when he appears to his disciples following his resurrection? 
Luke 24:41. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, "Got anything to eat?" <laughs> After Jesus appears to his disciples in John's account, he helps them catch a lot of fish. And then he says to them, John chapter 21, verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. So he was a breakfast guy. And he breakfasts people. I don't understand any of you. I don't get, I don't, I'm not a breakfast person. My wife, Mia, loves breakfast. And I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I, I just woke up. I don't need all those calories. It's like I haven't earned them yet. But, but she loves them, man. Eggs Benedict, you know, strawberry preserves. Capricorn, Macalado, whatever. Whatever you guys get. I don't get it, but apparently Jesus was one of you. So congrats. You got that going for you. Jesus is also the only guy that I know of that loved eating so much that it ticked a lot of people off. It's, I, it's true. Luke 7.34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. I mean, the guy loved eating so much that what do we do in remembrance of him? We eat. Do this in remembrance of me, Luke twenty two nineteen. But when I read this passage, I love the fact that Jesus' love of food is highlighted. But a lot of questions also come to mind. Something doesn't add up here, right? One basket equals 5,000. That's my first question. But I wonder specifically, if you were looking into the basket. As Jesus is distributing the food, what would we have seen? Would, were, were there new whole loaves of bread appearing in the basket? Or was, were the existing loaves growing as he was tearing off pieces and distributing them? Also, there's 5,000 people there. This, this sanctuary, when we pack the house, it's like 500. So 10 of our sanctuaries and one guy distributing the food. Did he distribute it all himself or did, did he have helpers? How did that work? If he had distributed one, you know, food to one person every five seconds, it would have taken him roughly seven hours. So was he doing it? Was he walking around all day distributing food? And these are the little tidbits that we get to fill in with our imagination. And that's one of the things I love about Scripture. It's a new story every time you open it up. You never read the same passage twice. Because new things appear to you, right? But there's one question that comes to mind when I read this passage that stands out. And it's a question that all of us ask ourselves as followers of Christ in one form or fashion at some point in time. And that is the question of, if Jesus could have fed 5,000 people with one basket of bread, why did he stop there? Why not 500,000? Or 5 million? Or 5 billion? If Jesus could feed 5,000 with one basket full of bread, five loaves of bread, and two fish, why does world hunger still exist today? If you're taking notes, I want you to write down a word. The word is theodicy. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Now, the word theodicy derives from two Greek words, theos, which means God, and disay, which can be translated as either trial or judgment. Thus, theodicy literally translates to justifying God. And the question of theodicy can be summarized as this. If God is all-powerful and wholly good, 
Why does evil exist? It's a good question, right? This is also known as the problem of pain. If God is good and he is in control, why is there suffering in the world today? Why doesn't God do something about it? And ultimately, this is a question that we all ask ourselves at one point in our lives. God, if you are good, why is there pain? And even more so, more importantly, why am I in pain? Why, God? Why? You ever ask yourself that? I know I have. I'm not going to lie to you. That may be the most difficult question that you will ever have to face. That is the abyss, is it not? People have been asking that question since Job sat in dust and ashes when his family was taken from him and he was struck ill, right? And all these signs and wonders that we've been studying shine a spotlight on it. When we read about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and healing sick people, at the back of our minds, inevitably, is the thought, why doesn't he do that for me? Why doesn't he heal me and my loved ones? Why doesn't he feed me? I mean, clearly he could. Scripture tells us that he could. So why doesn't he? I wish I could stand up here and tell you the answers. Lay out specifically how in God's plan your suffering ultimately results in good. I wish I could. But if the story of Job tells us anything, it's that that isn't for me to know. But here's what I can tell you. I want to present to you three ways in which the feeding of the 5,000 teaches us about this question of theodicy. Here's what I can tell you. Number one, Jesus is in control. He's not panicking. He's not worried. And Scripture is crystal clear on this point. Don't worry. Do we have anyone, you don't have to raise your hands, do we have anyone who struggles with anxiety, right? You get anxious. I know I have, you know. And if you are, if you are someone who struggles with anxiety, you're definitely not alone. The National Institute of Mental Health reports that one in three adults in the United States experience an anxiety disorder during their lives. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples was a warrior. Who? Philip. We just read about him in this story, right? Our setting for this story, if you'll recall, is Jesus is starting to amass following. He's performing these signs and wonders and he's trying to keep them on the down low but because the hour has not yet come, remember, but word's starting to get out. And so people are starting to follow him. He's amassing a following of thousands. He goes up on a mountainside. Thousands of people flock to him to see him. And uh, the first thing I notice about this story is his interaction with Philip. In verse 4, we read, Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, Where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. Does this interaction strike you as humorous at all? Part of me wonders if Jesus is playing a prank on Philip. He knows he's the warrior of the group, so he runs up to him and goes, Phil, what are we going to do? <laughs> Phil's like, was I supposed to bring bread? I, 
I'm so so. I, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't, how are we going to feed them? But maybe I'm speaking from my own experience. But I, of course, would never in a million years use someone's anxiety to my own amusement. Never. Maybe except for my mom. And a few others. <laughs> but notice what it says in verse 6. He asked this to test him. For he himself knew what he was going to do. Jesus had no doubt as to how he was going to procure provisions for these 5,000 people that were following him. He wasn't worried. But Philip didn't know. And Jesus knew Philip's heart. No matter what circumstances you face, I want you to know that Jesus is in control. He is not panicking. He is not worried. In the Sermon on the Mount, possibly Jesus' most famous sermon in all of Scripture, captured in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus talks at length about worry. And it's something that's provided me much comfort in times when I have found myself anxious and worried. I go back to this particular passage of Scripture found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. And so I wanted to read it for you today because Scripture is crystal clear on what to do with worry. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wild flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? You have little faith. So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry. Don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. I love that. Each day has enough trouble of its own. God knows what you need. Don't worry. It's not going to solve any of your problems. Jesus is in control. Have you ever thought about the line in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread? You ever thought about that line before? What does it imply? At some level, doesn't it imply that they didn't have that bread that morning? And they didn't have enough bread for tomorrow. Isn't that what that implies at some level? That Jesus was praying for his, to his Father in heaven for the bread right in front of him. And only the bread right in front of him. Don't worry. Bread is not the point. 
Because luckily for us, number two, what Jesus offers us is more significant than bread. All of the signs and wonders in some capacity serve the purpose of highlighting the fact that the miracle isn't the point. Feeding the 5,000 isn't the main event. I don't know if you noticed, but there's like 20 chapters left in John after this. It's not the main event. It's not even the opening act. It's, it's a sideshow that's used to pave the way to the glorious end of the story. Every sign shows us this. You want to know what Jesus has to say about bread in Matthew chapter 4? He talks a lot about bread. In Matthew chapter 4 verse 4, Jesus says, man cannot live on bread alone. You want to know what Jesus has to say about water to the Samaritan woman at the well? Have you heard this? John chapter 4, I can give you living water. Bread is not the point. Get this through your thick skull. Bread is not the point. Your God is not your stomach. Your mortal shell is not the reason for your being. All of Jesus' signs and wonders point to this. But there's one example in particular that I believe is the quintessential example of this. And that is when Jesus heals a sick man who's carried in on a stretcher, who's lowered through the roof. Have you guys heard this story? If you're not familiar with it, during Jesus' preaching and teaching, he ends up in a house surrounded by people. There's a huge crowd. So much so that there's a sick man on a stretcher who wants to come and see Jesus, but he can't because he's surrounded by people. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 5, starting in verse 19, captures this. But they could not find a way to take him in because of so many people. They made a hole in the roof over where Jesus stood. Then they let the bed with the sick man on it down before Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Friend, your sins are forgiven. If I'm the homeowner, I'm like, come on, guys, really? But when I read this story, what stands out to me, I envision Jesus seeing this poor sick man on a stretcher, making eye contact with him, and seeing into his soul, right? Seeing that his pain was not merely physical, but primarily spiritual, despite appearances. Maybe this man had been sick a long time. Maybe he believed that something in his past was causing this sickness, that God was punishing him in some way. And then Jesus looks into his eyes, into his very soul, and says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And in that moment, he's free. He's lifted. He feels something change. He can't describe it, but it's like a weight has been lifted off his shoulders. And he knows that he's looking into the face of the Son of the one true God, Jesus Christ. But for the people who were standing in the room around him, what do you think they were thinking? They were like, is that it? I mean, you think that's what he came for? They were like looking in the appendix of the story. They were like, is, is, there's, there's something else, right? He didn't come for that. And besides, who is this guy? Who says he can forgive sins? What is he, the son of God? Spoiler alert. So that's what they're thinking. The Gospel of Luke continues, The teachers of the law and the proud religious law keepers thought to themselves, Who is this man who speaks as if he is God? Who can forgive sins but God only? Jesus knew what they were thinking. He said to them, Why do you think this way in your hearts? 
Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? So that you may know the Son of Man has the right and the power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who could not move his body, I say to you, get up and walk. Take your bed and go to your home. At once the sick man got up in front of them. He took his bed and went to his home, thanking God. What's easier, the forgiveness of sins or get up and walk? The implication is clear there. Bread is not the point. Jesus didn't come to give you bread. He came to give you something so much greater. God's grace cannot be bought with any amount of power or money or fame. Your salvation can be bought by one thing and one thing only. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ, Son of the one true God. So after Jesus leaves the crowd, after they've been fed, they're all fat and sassy, he leaves the crowd, but some of the people want more. They're like, they're looking for, it's like their favorite band left town and the groupies are following along. So they follow him across the Sea of Galilee and they're looking for signs and wonders. You know what Jesus says to them? He said, you want bread? John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Bread is not the point, at least not the kind of bread that you're thinking. But it's easy for me to stand up here and say that Jesus is more significant than bread, right? I mean, I've never wanted for a meal in my life. I'm not bound to a stretcher. It's easy. You know how many people died of starvation last year? Nine million. In 2022, nine million people died because they didn't have enough to eat. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm going to leave church today and go home and eat like a medieval king. It's not fair. It's wrong. Why are people starving all over the world when our supposed Savior fed 5,000 people with one basket? But I want to bring something to your attention. Bear with me. If everyone in the world embraced the teachings of Christ, what would happen to world hunger? It would disappear. I really do believe this. No significant advancements in technology, no Major geopolitical restructurings, no rabbits pulled out of a hat, nothing. Just Jesus. I really do believe that. Because luckily for us, number three, we must give all to Jesus and he will multiply it. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the kid who gave his lunch to the disciples for a second. Can you do that? You got your lunch. Some random guys come up to you and go, we're hungry. Can we have your lunch? What would you do? I know what I would do. I'd say, heck no. Get your own lunch. This is mine. Even if I was in a particularly generous mood, I'd probably say, I'll split it with you. You can have half, I'll take half. 
We can both have some, right? Even if I was feeling really generous, I mean really generous, like in a, they caught me in a great mood, I would, give them, I would say, let me take a little piece. I'll go hungry. I don't have to have it all. I, don't even, I just want a little bit, and then you can have the rest. What does a kid do? He gives it all. And Jesus multiplies it beyond what he could possibly ask or imagine. His meager contribution, his two small coins, was used to feed 5,000 people. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. God does not demand part of you or most of you. He wants it all. So whatever you're holding on to, whatever little sliver of bread you're holding back for yourself, let it go. And Jesus will take your meager, paltry contribution and multiply it beyond what you would be capable of in a thousand years. I promise you, I've seen it. All you have to do is put your faith in Him. All of the signs and wonders highlight this for us. You ever think, none of the theatrics are necessary. You really think Jesus needed this kid's lunch to feed 5,000 people? No. You think he couldn't have just snapped his fingers and everyone would have had bread. Everyone's belly would have been full. You think he needed that kid's lunch? Of course he didn't. We saw with the healing of the royal official's son a couple weeks ago, Jesus didn't even need to be in the same room as someone for them to be healed. Right? What they all show us, the common thread between them all, all of the signs and wonders, is people giving what they have to Jesus. People pursuing Jesus. People putting their faith in Jesus and Jesus running to them to close the gap. Jesus going the distance when we take steps towards him. The question of theodicy is one of the most powerful tools in the utility belt of the enemy. God, if you're there and you're good, why am I in pain? Why am I suffering? Why are my finances in shambles? Why is my marriage falling apart? Why am I struggling with addiction, depression, you name it? How could you stand by and watch my health fail? How could you stand by and watch my child die? You don't care. You say you care. You say you love me. You don't. Or you would do something about it. We've been there. I've been there. If you haven't been there, I'm happy for you. I really, truly am. I hope you never will be. But the odds are that you will. Some of you might be there right now. If you're there right now, I want to say I'm sorry for what it's worth. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're at the end of your rope. I'm sorry that you have no idea how you're going to rebuild from here. I'm sorry that you have no idea where you're going to go. I'm sorry. I want to tell you something. And if you didn't listen to anything else I said, I want you to remember this. Your Father in Heaven loves you. Your Father in Heaven loves you more than you could possibly fathom. And the pain that you're in right now, 
It shatters him to his core. It tears him to the fiber of his being. You don't worship a God who is indifferent to your suffering. Philippians 2, 7 through 8. He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. You think he had to do that? Of course not. I want you to remember just one more thing. Even if you forget everything else, I want you to remember this. He is there for you. Always. He will never forsake you. He will never abandon you. You may feel alone, but He's here. He's here right now. He's here for you. He is there in your darkest moments. He loved you so much that while you still pushed Him away, while you were still yet a sinner, He put Himself through the worst pain imaginable. Sending His Son, His Son whom He loved, in whom He was well pleased to die in the most excruciating way possible. You want to know why? To show you that He loved you. To provide a pathway so that he could be reconciled to you. I want you to know something else. Just bear with me for one more second. As dark as it seems right now, there is hope. There is hope. It is in the darkest of places that his light may shine the brightest. On that day when Jesus fed the 5,000, they tried by force to make him king. Did you catch that? But the hour had not yet come. But a day is coming when history reaches its conclusion and time is at an end. When the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth have reared their ugly heads. And on that day, you will look and you will see, you will behold the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who loved you to death and back to life again. And on that day, all wrongs will be righted. On that day, heaven shall meet earth. And on that day, suffering shall cease. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then face to face. Now, I know in part but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Father, I want to thank you. I am so grateful to know you. I am so grateful that you have called my name. I am so grateful for the grace that is afforded me by the blood of your son. God, I can't imagine the pain that he went through, the pain that you went through so that I could know you, so that I could be reconciled to you. But I'm thankful. I'm grateful. God, I pray for the people in this place. I pray for the people that have gone through it, that are going through it right now, and that will go through it in the future. The point at which they're broken, they're hurting, they're suffering. 
God, I pray that you would be with them. I pray that your presence would be felt in a tangible way. I pray that your presence would be known to them, that they would turn to you, that they would call upon your name, and that you would give them grace, peace, mercy, salvation. God, thank you for all that you've done for us. I pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.